9 through the end of the chapter, and our text will be verses 14 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the reading of God's word, let us pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would give unto us that which David pray, prayed for in the 51st Psalm. The joy of the Lord, we know that is our strength. And we pray now that it would be our joy in addition to being convicted by your word. By hearing it read and preached this morning, we pray for the work of your spirit to be done in our hearts, to open our ears, and that we would apply it to our lives. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. Remember where we've been in Romans chapter 12? Uh, we've seen that the Apostle Paul, after expounding the gospel of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, he says, in light of that, we are to offer our bodies a living sacrifice, that the proper response for the Christian is to offer his or her body a living sacrifice to God. And then we saw, last time we were in Romans in verses 3 through 8, we saw that uh, Paul, actually before that, we saw that Paul talks about life in the body, that we've all been given a certain gift so that we might serve other Christians in the church. And then in verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And so last time we were in Romans chapter 12, we considered those verses there, verses 9 through 13. And so in our text this morning, verses 14 through 21, uh, the apostle continues with these imperatives in light of the gospel. And uh, he tells us exactly how it is that we might have a love that is not hypocritical. We could ask the question, how do we know if our love is without hypocrisy? Well, we look in our text, even the one we read just now, and we see it there. And uh, in our verses for this morning, there is a theme, isn't there? 
the theme is that retaliation or revenge is not to be named among the Christian. That's major point in our text. And before we dive right into it, let me just say, because no doubt you've asked this or will in light of verses like these, is it ever right for a Christian to defend himself or herself? And I would say, you know, according to Scripture, absolutely it is. In Exodus chapter 22, God's law talks about the person who breaks in a house at nighttime, and the homeowner is warranted for defending his home, his family, in that scenario. Remember that part of the sixth commandment, which says you shall not kill, part of the sixth commandment is the preservation of human life in different ways. And self-defense, no doubt, is one of them. Jesus told the disciples in Luke 22, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and go buy one. And uh, Savior says this as well. We need to remember this. Talking about whoever slaps you on your right cheek, he says, turn the other cheek. That means offer your other cheek to be slapped. That's what the Savior says there. That's in Matthew 5.39. But his point there, when he talks about that, is that personal slights and offenses, that is suffering for the sake of the gospel at the hands of the civil magistrate, is not to surprise us. And there might be times where we are called upon as the disciples of Jesus to suffer as his disciples and uh, we, we mustn't resist that. We must suffer well in that case. There are many other things we could say about that. The point I'm just making is that on the one hand, we do have the right of self-defense. On the other hand, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Those are two different scenarios that we have to understand. But we're looking at Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. And as we do that this morning... Uh, we need to understand that Paul is talking about these certain virtues of Christian love. There is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But here Paul illustrates for us what Christian love looks like in a different way. It's not contradictory to 1 Corinthians 13. It's just a different way of saying it and talking about other examples. And so what are the virtues or the characteristics of Christian love, a love of the Christian that is without hypocrisy. That's the question this morning. And again, the common thread is that we are forbidden to show personal retaliation for offenses, or I should add to that, perceived offenses as well. So what does Christian love look like? Well, first of all, we see in our text that Christian love offers a blessing, not cursing. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The word bless here means to speak well towards others, to give thanks to others, to be kind towards others. And I think, if my memory serves me correctly... The Greek word here is the word from which we get the word eulogy, to bless or to speak well of, as in a funeral. We talk about someone 
who had a virtuous life. And hopefully the preacher doesn't lie about a person in such circumstances. But the word here is to bless, to speak well of. And Paul says, concerning those who persecute us as Christians, we are to bless them in return. Uh, The old Scottish uh, commentator John Murray said this about these verses, No practical exhortation places greater demands upon our spirits than to bless them that persecute us. Some of you perhaps will find that this comes easier than others. If you're a very justice-oriented person, you struggle with this. And if you have a sense of justice, you will struggle to one degree or another with this in a fallen world. Jesus has already told Christians as to why they can expect persecution, why they can expect to be hated as Christians. He says, don't be surprised. Uh, They hated me before they hated you. And so Jesus forewarns his disciples that there are those in the world who are unbelievers who will hate Christians. Why? Because they hate Jesus. Remember, on the road to Damascus, there is Saul before he's converted, before he becomes the apostle Paul. Maybe it's at that time. Jesus confronts him. He halts him in his tracks, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul was rounding up Christians, people other than Jesus. But Jesus is showing he has a connection, a very special connection, a union with his people. And to persecute his people is to persecute him. And sometimes in this world, uh, people persecute Christians because they are really persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want him to rule over them. And perhaps that was the case for you before you became a Christian, as it was with Saul before he became a Christian and became Paul. Again, this is not our natural inclination. If you look there at verse 14, Paul knows this even As Christians, we will struggle with this. He says, bless those who persecute you. He says, bless and do not curse. In case you didn't hear what I was saying, in case you have a second thought, maybe you're doubting it, bless and do not curse. He puts it that way. Do not curse. Do not wish evil against. This is nothing new, is it? Again, our Lord has taught us this. Earlier in the New Testament, Matthew 5, beginning of verse 44, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Those who are justified and those who are not. Those who are forgiven by God and those who are not. God sends His Son on them. He sends His rain to them. And Jesus says, if you want to demonstrate that you are a child of your heavenly Father, bless those who curse you. And so Paul shows us that here. Elsewhere, the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4, Verses 12 and 13, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, 
but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? There he was preaching the gospel as a deacon in the church of Jesus Christ, speaking truth, calling out sinners, no doubt, but calling them to come to Christ for forgiveness through faith and repentance. And uh, they wouldn't have it. So they stoned him. And as the historical account goes, they pushed him over a cliff to, and uh, put boulders on top of him. But as they were stoning him, he cried out. Luke tells us, he said this, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Can you imagine that? Being killed, murdered, because you are a Christian. And praying to God for that person who is killing you. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Maybe we don't retaliate with our fists. This certainly forbids that. Maybe it's just with our tongue. That tongue, which James says is the fire. You know, it's also like a sword. It can slash, it can cut, it pierces. You know, my kids, we, we talk about R.C. Sproul sometimes and some of the teachings that he's uh, engaged in over the years. And there's one he's talking about words and how uh, they can be harmful. And uh, as only he could say, he, he talks about when he was a kid, they called him Bucky Beaver and and because uh, he had big teeth and he had to grow into them. And uh, he would say, well, they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. And as he said that, he would say, that's not true. They hurt. And we want to lash out. But James tells us in chapter 3, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. And so our actions have consequences, but even our words can have a powerful effect on a situation. So the Bible calls us to be slow to speak, right? Our words can have a, such a powerful effect on a situation. In Proverbs 15, 1, it says, A soft answer turns away what? Wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. So, um, some time ago, on a Monday, I was playing golf by myself. Pastors do that sometimes. Uh, pastors normally take Mondays off. And uh, there I was at this golf course. I may have played it once before. It's cheap and expensive, and uh, it's a shorter course. It's not very long, and for some reason, I'd been hitting my drives a lot longer than I do normally, and uh, there were other guys out there, so either they were a pastor or um, retired, because it's that time of day or, you know, not working, do, you know, during COVID, whatever it is, um, and I thought, okay, they've been at that spot for a long time. They're not moving. What are they doing? I said, okay, I'm going to hit the ball. So I walk up to the tee box, I tee up my ball, I hit it, and I'm like, oh, no, that ball is still going. It is still going. Pow! It echoed throughout the golf course. I hit the top of the golf cart. Never in my life have been playing off and on 25 years or so, and never have done that in my life. I thought, oh, no, I could have badly hurt someone, could have killed someone. And sure enough, the cart turns around. He's going the wrong way. He's not going towards the hole. He's coming back to the tee box. It's an older gentleman, and uh, smoke's coming out of his ears. And I'm like, I'm about to get it. What am I going to do? And the text here calls us to think, think ahead and think about this. Well, what am I going to do? I let him vent. He, he can't even 
get his words straight. And, uh, and then I said, you know what, sir? I didn't think I was going to hit the ball that long. I thought you were about to go. I said, I've been playing this many years. Never have I done that. I made a bad decision, bad judgment call. And he kept on. I said, will you forgive me? And he looked at me. He goes, well, I guess I, I have to. I'm in the forgiving business. I'm a, I'm a retired pastor. And by the way, I serve over there at that church, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, what church it is. Uh, but asking him to forgive me, how many people, I'm not bragging, okay, that's the work of God's grace in my life. But you see how your words can affect the situation. And there have been times where in the past I, I wouldn't have done that. I could have gotten mad at him, okay, I started to, I found my, myself, I was bowling on the inside. He, that was an accident. How dare him get angry at me for committing an accident, Right? And so we have to watch what we say and what we do. We have to watch our hearts and guard our hearts. And so people will tell us that B is for vendetta. Well, for the Christian, B is for blessing. And that's what we see here. Christian love offers a blessing and not a curse. Second, uh, we see here that Christian love shows empathy, not jealousy or callousness. Christian love, true love shows empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy, not jealousy, not callousness. And so it's been said, you know, you never know about a person until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, as Christians, if we're going to love our neighbors, we have to put on their shoes, metaphorically, not literally, but we have to see what it's like to live in their shoes, what it is like to be them in their life. And so Paul continues there in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know this verse if you've read your Bible, if you've been, you've been in the church for some time, you've heard them. And let me just say, as we walk through these verses... It is amazing. And I, should, I say this, I shouldn't be amazed at God's word, but how his word uh, is always relevant, how his word, which is unchanging and wise because it comes from our all-wise creator who knows us, it always applies. I'm thinking of our day and time and a, quote, social justice climate when, as we'll see, social justice in that sense is perverted justice. There's no allowance for grace. There's no allowance for growth. There's no allowance for forgiveness. No, no. You've got to take them to task. You've got to hold them to the fire. And we're going to see that uh, that is unbiblical and that the Christian should not participate in such a worldly, ungodly philosophy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Why do I bring that up? This is a corrective to our hearts. The tenth commandment is you shall not what? Covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. His house, his servant, his wife, his maidservant, whatever belongs to your neighbor. The flip side of that if, is if your neighbor advances, even in some material, temporal things, you aren't to become jealous. No, we are told to rejoice with those who rejoice, whether it's in the church or even outside of the church, as long as they're obtaining something that is lawful and good and so forth, or it may be just some circumstance in his life, her life, we are to rejoice with that person. If they 
if they are overjoyed because of something that God has given to them or some act of providence that God has shown towards them, we rejoice with them. That's what we're told to do here. We're to be like those in heaven who see one person converted. It says that they rejoice in heaven. We rejoice with the saints in heaven. We rejoice with the one who is converted, who comes to Jesus. And it's, we're to have the attitude of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26. He says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so there's not this competition amongst Christians in the church of Christ. That's what was happening at Corinth. Remember the spiritual gifts? So Paul talks about the body there as he does in Romans 12. And so if one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. If one member is honored, the whole body rejoices with it. That should be how we respond uh, when others uh, receive the joy of the Lord. And so whether it's the workplace where someone receives a promotion or a job or the milestones in life, perhaps a person is engaged, they get married, we don't become jealous. Lord, why haven't you sent me a wife? You say that he finds a wife, finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Or they receive an inheritance or they purchase a home, whatever it is, a car. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Then he says, weep with those who weep. Remember Job, righteous Job. God says, my servant Job. In Job 30 and verse 25, Job says, have I not wept for him who is in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Do we weep today? Do we grieve over sinners who are lost? Do we grieve when others experience loss and they cry? Remember the death of Lazarus? John tells us in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Many of the Jews joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them. Jesus arrives, and John tells us he saw Mary weeping, and those who were with her weeping. And Jesus groaned in his spirit. He became troubled. And then, of course, finally, that verse you can memorize, John 11.35, it says there, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Why? He loved Lazarus. And he loved Mary and Martha. The Bible addresses this in other ways. In Hebrews 13 and verse 3, speaking of our persecuted brethren, other Christians who were thrown in jail, who received torment, or perhaps were canceled, or whatever. It says there in Hebrews 13, 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Remember the other Christians who are imprisoned as if you are chained with them. Undergo that suffering with them, it says. 
And perhaps you're the one crying this morning, maybe not on the outside. But you've done your share lately. In Psalm 56 and verse 8, it says that God himself takes note of our suffering, yes, even our tears. The psalmist says, you number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? God himself takes note of all of our tears because he is a compassionate. He is not calloused and he loves his children. And so too must be, must we be as well. And again today, this is not our culture. We have a spiteful culture, a culture seeking personal revenge, a culture that is callous, apathetic towards those who suffer. Well, that's your bed, you got to make it. That's your grave, you dug it, live in it. And even though there is responsibility, and even though someone may have led or done things leading up to their, their terrible circumstances, which caused them to suffer, we're to understand that they are sinners like we are, that they deserve hell like we do, and God has shown us grace, so he might show them grace, and so let's exercise the grace that we've been shown by God towards them. That's the idea. Well, third, we see here in our text that Christian love demonstrates impartiality, not favoritism. That's there in verse 16. It says, but, or rather, be of the same mind toward one another. That really, I think what that means is treat others the same way. Treat everyone the same. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I think that's the common thread here in this verse. Treat everyone the same. Paul will pray this for the Roman Christians a little later in chapter 15. This was the attitude of the early Christian apostolic church. In Acts 4.32, it says they were of one heart and one soul. They were knitted together. And uh, also in the early apostolic Christian church, uh, some of the Christians like us today struggled with this. Perhaps you remember that letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Why would Paul have to write that? Well, one reason was it's because in the church at Philippi, there were two women who had a cat fight. I don't know if it was over their hair or their gown or their Gucci shoes. I don't know. It was Euodia and Syntyche, and he calls them out. He asked the church there, help them to get along. And so God does not require uniformity among us. We're different. We're all made in His image. We share the same Savior. We talked about this recently. And we share the same spirit and the same love that that produces in our hearts, that common bond. And yet we're different. We look differently. Yet, there is to be unity among us as the children of God. 
And we recognize that we all deserve the same destination. We all deserve the same pronouncement from heaven. Guilty as charged. And we deserve to hear those words at the last day, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh, but because of the grace of God, because God is also a God of love and forgiveness, we will here enter into the kingdom. Good and faithful servant. Why? Because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And so he says here, treat treat everyone the same. And uh, in verse 16 there, do not set your mind on high things. Be careful to what it is that you aspire in life. You know, maybe I've shared this with some of you. Um, As a new Christian, I started at Georgia State. I saw this poster somewhere. I was on vacation. I got it because I I thought, I'm going to college. I'm going to make lots of money. And this poster said, justification for higher education. And it was this home on the side of a mountain, probably in Malibu. It looked looked like a typical California home. It had like a five-car garage, bought these exotic cars, and well... That's not what life's all about. If God blesses you with a lump of cash and you happen to buy one of those cars, take me for a ride, that, that would be nice. Maybe buy me a Mustang, okay, I'm just saying. But the point is, that's not what we aspire to. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Paul warns the rich in 1 Timothy 3. He tells them, you know, don't trust in these things. And he tells them to share with all. And here he says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. James talks about that, right? The guy comes in, it's evident by the way he dresses that he has money. And if he has money, he has prestige and power. And you come up and you say, hi, sir, I'm I'm taking great liberty here. But come on on in, sir, sit here. We saved you a seat right at the front where everyone can see you. And we're going to pass them around the plate later, and they can see you put your money in the, in, the, in the plate. No, James says, don't. Don't show favoritism like that. If the Lord has blessed you with finances, praise the Lord. There are those in Scripture who were wealthy, and God uses such men, but they are few and far between. It's because uh, men who can appreciate that and not let those things become an idol are few and far between. And it says, associate with the humble. The disciples wrestled with this. Remember, they're walking with Jesus, Matthew 18, the first few verses. And they're asking, well, who is the greatest? They were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. And they asked him, well, who is the greatest? Jesus pulls a little child near. Unless you become converted and become like this little child, you will not be, or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't talk about who's going to be the greatest. He says, uh, if you are not humbled... You will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the idea is um, articulated. It's written about there in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Another church that was full of division. Paul says there, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, in Philippians 4, 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
there's a fourth virtue here in verses 17 through 21, and that is that Christian love pursues personal peace, not retaliation. Personal love pursues, or I should say Christian love pursues personal peace, not retaliation. In our day and time, I need to ask this question because people think it. I've thought it. But isn't God just? Doesn't God want what is right? Doesn't God want what is fair? Doesn't God want others to receive what is coming to them? Yeah. He is just. He's righteous. But he's also full of grace and truth. He delights in mercy, the Bible tells us. And so here, we are told in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Now, I will, I will say one reason I, I believe the Bible says this is because we are fallen. We are sinful, even as Christians. And if we go around repaying others for evil as we think they should be paid, guess what? Our judgment is going to be faulty. We aren't going to do a good job. And when it comes to anger, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, be angry and sin not. When you become angry, do not sin. And in fact, in James, I can't remember if it's chapter 3, James says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God is not impressed with your anger. We're to be angry and sin not. There is righteous indignation, but our indignation is rarely righteous because it's mixed with sin. And we do. We do perceive an injustice and we get angry. And that's where the anger comes from, no doubt. But, but here it says, repay no one evil for evil. Do not pay them back. Do not reward them. In fact, our Lord says in Matthew 5, 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Again, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Jesus teaches us in that scenario to turn the other cheek and offer it. Now, I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up in a big city. I grew up in Lithonia as well. I, I know what it's like to watch my back. So does this mean I may not defend myself? We've already touched on that. That's another sermon. But I will say, no, it doesn't mean that. But what Christ is telling us, if we are persecuted, if we suffer because we're Christian, because we name the name of Christ, we are not to pay evil for evil. In fact, if I do defend myself lawfully, that defense, that self-defense is not evil, right? Because God grants me the right to do that. Besides, Romans 13 is coming. The civil magistrate. Why has God given the civil magistrate? To punish evildoers. Protect those who do good. And remember the golden rule. Children, what is the golden rule? Do you know that? Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew 7, he says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others the way 
you would like to be treated. It doesn't say, do unto others as they do unto you. There's a big difference, right? Somebody socks you in the face. Hey, you so-and-so, come here. And you turn around and sock him or her in the face. No. We're to be peacemakers, to seek the peace. And he says, repay no one evil for evil. In Leviticus, in the law, and in particular in the book of Leviticus, it says this in chapter 19 and verse 18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the law, Levitical law, it says, We are not to bear a grudge, but we are to love our neighbor. Why? Because God is the Lord. He is our Lord. And we are to exemplify, to to follow his behavior. Proverbs 20 and verse 22, it says, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. That's the idea. Wait for the Lord, he will save you. Well, then it says, have good regard or have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Uh, one has said, in light of this, the Christian is to lead the way in doing good. After all, we are called what by Jesus? Salt and light. Not darkness. Not the way of the world which says, cancel them with all you've got. And then he says this, if you look there at verse 18, if, notice notice the Bible's honesty here, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, talk about qualifiers, live peaceably with all men. So that's the command Live peaceably with all men, but it says, if at all possible, or if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We are to be peacemakers. And in being peacemakers, that doesn't mean that we ignore the truth, that we twist the truth, that we water down the truth. No, we are to preach the truth. Jesus, John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And yet... If at all possible, be at peace with all men. Have you been argumentative? Have you been sinful towards someone recently? The Bible says here that we are to live peaceably with all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on us. Some people, you're, just, you're not going to be in harmony with some people. Sometimes, more recently, I've I've come to that conclusion. Nobody in the church. But I've I've wondered and prayed, Lord, what can I do? And if it is possible, as much as depends on you. Now, we might give ourselves a little more slack than we ought. uh, But uh, we are to seek the peace with men as it says here. 
And then you'll notice it says, Beloved, do not, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Do not avenge yourselves. Do not give justice towards others. Do not take revenge. You know, we talk about vigilantes. Um, we have novels and movies entitled A Time to Kill. Well, that does come from Ecclesiastes, but that's talking about something else. You have to go back and look at it in its context. Do not give that person what he or she deserves. It says, give place to wrath there. So what does that mean, give place to wrath? Charles Hodge notes that there are three possible answers. Um, it refers to either your wrath, or four, an- four possible answers, your wrath, your enemy's wrath, perhaps the wrath of the civil magistrate. He's going to talk about that in chapter 13. Or he refers to God's wrath. I think it could refer to the wrath of the civil magistrate, but when you look at that, you'll see that God is the one who has given the civil magistrate for a particular reason. And so that ultimately leads back to God's wrath. And if you look at the context here, it says there in verse 19, give place to wrath for, here's the reason, it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so ultimately, it's talking about God's wrath. Give place to the wrath of God. Remember that He is loving, He is kind, He is gracious, but He is also just. He is holy. He cannot look upon sin. He must punish sin. He's just. And He will execute His wrath in due time. In fact, He quotes from the Old Testament there in verse 20, um, or verse 19, Vengeance is mine. That comes from Deuteronomy 32. Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That is the text from which he got that sermon. And if you haven't read it, read it. Because if you're a Christian, you will be so joyful that God is not dangling you like a, like a spider over the fire that you are not on your way to hell. But the point is, God is the one who executes vengeance. That is up to God. He is the creator. Only he has the right to do it. Yes, he tells certain magistrates how to do it, or the magistrate how to do it, no doubt. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, in the days ahead. So do not, it says, avenge yourselves. You know, we have a great example of how this is done. Back on June 17th in 2015, under the guise of visiting a prayer meeting, a young white man at the age of 21 years old, Dylan Roof, entered the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, only to pull out a gun and murder nine of its members, including their pastor. So how would these Christians respond to that man? Well, the AME Christians who were African American, the shooter who was white, faced each other other in the courtroom via teleconference. And more than one family, one or more than one of the families of the victims that were killed, they looked at that young man. And they said, it's the Christian thing to do. We forgive you. 
we forgive you. But may God have mercy upon you. And if, in fact, he was found guilty of murder, I think he was, the state should have put that man to death. Genesis 9, 6. If that's the attitude, we forgive. How many times have you heard of such circumstances where the Christian has been violated in some way? They wanted to find the perpetrator later on to offer the gospel of Christ, and that's commendable from God. That attitude is a far cry from what we see today in the name of perverted justice. Why? Because it takes faith in God and His character and who He is and who He says He is to trust Him that He will do what is right, that He will in the end make all things right the day of judgment. Go back and read the 73rd Psalm. Asaph struggled when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, men who hated God, cursed God, and here he was serving God in the temple. But then he remembered their end, the day of judgment, how God was going to smash them down on the rocks as it were. He began to have a heart for them, and pity for them. Even God himself in Ezekiel 33:11 says that he does not Delight in the death of the wicked. And so our text, it says there in verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21 is a summary statement of this whole text. So what, is, what does it mean here when Paul quotes the Old Testament? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I think this is where Charles Hodge had three offerings. Um, What does it mean? Well, it could mean that as you do this, as you overcome evil with good, giving a drink, giving food to your enemy, it could mean that you are increasing your enemy's guilt and thus his punishment. That doesn't seem to have the same spirit as this passage, does it? It could mean that you cause your enemy to become guilty or to feel his shame. It could mean that. Or it could mean that in so doing, you will win your enemy. And there are those who note that more recently it's been discovered that in Egypt, for whatever reason, I don't understand the logic here, but in ancient Egypt, uh, the penitent, those who were, were repentant, would demonstrate that by carrying hot coals on their head. So if that's the case, the point is, in so doing, you will lead to your enemy's repentance. In that sense, you're overcoming evil with good. I would say at the very least, as Christians, when we are treated badly, our reaction and response towards them that treat us in that way should cause them to be puzzled. To think, you really could have stuck it to me. You could have taken me to the court of law. And I will share with you, not everyone will have that response when you apply this. Because they're entitled, they think. But that doesn't matter. The outcome is up to God who judges. We are to follow his 
prescription here in Scripture. Jesus himself in 1 Peter 2, it says there, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who what? Judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The way that Jesus in his humanity as the obedient son to the heavenly father was able to go to the cross and receive such an injustice is that he committed his very existence, his soul to his heavenly father. That's what we must do. That's why our spiritual forefathers in England, in Scotland, in Ireland, wherever it is, in communist China, they could stand before a civil magistrate and say, yes, I confess Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lord. He is the King of Kings. Whatever you do to me, do it. God is the judge. He will save me. This body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, is what the reformer Luther said. So as we think about this, How can we do this? Well, we go to the one who empowers us to do this. We go to Christ himself. We pray for his spirit to empower us to do these very things. To overcome evil with good. God who takes evil and causes it even to work for our good as his children. Romans 8, 28. And think about his dealing with us. Is God just? Yes, Look at the cross. Talk about a plot change. God knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was doing. God took the wicked intentions of men, allowed his son to go to the cross. There he poured out his justice that we deserve at Calvary on the Lord Jesus. Why? So that we who were, un- we who were unjust might become just and forgiven by God. And of course, it was the Savior who on the cross cried out in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And so, beloved, may it be with us as well. Amen. Let's pray.